We're going to have a little time for a question and answer. Somebody already preempted the process this morning by, by asking me a question that uh, I think is, is, I'll come out here behind this thing a little bit, um, which I think is worthy of, of just a very brief answer. And then I'm going to let you go to those microphones wherever they are and ask whatever's on your mind. Um, I have been asked the question a number of times, uh, how do I feel about the recent uh, election? And uh, what does it mean to Christians and what should be the role of Christians in government and all of those kinds of things? Without getting into too much detail, if you want, you can ask a follow-up question. Let me put it to you as simply as I possibly can and give you the bottom line. Whether you have a democratic Congress or a democratic House, whether you have a democratic president or whether you have a Republican Senate House or president, whether you have... um, Justices on the Supreme Court that tend to be liberal or conservative has absolutely nothing to do with the kingdom of God. Now, that's about as bottom line as I can put it. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It has absolutely nothing to do with it. It doesn't matter whether you're in a democracy, whether you're in a republic like we are in America. It doesn't matter whether you have representative government or whether you're in a monarchy uh, with a king whether you're in a tribe with a chief, uh, whether you're in a uh, Eastern European country with a dictator, or whether you're in a banana republic with a dictator. It doesn't really matter matter what kind of government you're in or what the circumstances of government are. Furthermore, it doesn't matter what the cultural morality is. It doesn't matter whether there is a semblance of uh, morality, such as there there is in, uh, say, South Africa, where you still have tremendous impact morally on the culture by the strength of Dutch reformed leadership or whether you have Sweden and in Sweden there is absolutely no morality of basically any kind it doesn't matter whether you have uh, Canada which would be a, a more conservative country in some ways from the standpoint of social things or whether you have the United States which is anything but conservative socially Those things are absolutely disconnected in every sense from the kingdom of God, which is completely spiritual. My kingdom is not of this world. So when we're dealing with politics or when we're dealing with government, we're dealing with something that is a matter of um, citizenship, not a matter of spiritual concern. And in that regard, we have to be very careful how much time we commit to it. I believe that we ought to do what we ought to do as citizens. That means we ought to vote, and certainly whenever we can, we ought to vote in morality. Um, now, I, I am happier uh, with uh, the Republican Senate and the Republican Congress, not because they're Republican, but because I like their agenda better, because I think that God has created man not, um, not to be um, put in a position where he doesn't need to produce But God has designed that man be put in a position where he must produce. And the Bible puts it as simply as this. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's what Scripture says. And I think you steal the dignity of people. You take away their sense of well-being, their sense of achievement, accomplishment, the goodness of life. uh, When you don't create an environment in which they are stimulated to be productive. I think there are a lot of things that I like about uh, the, the Republican agenda. Uh, toughness on crime. The Bible's very tough on crime. It says capital punishment works if it's swift. And that's because God has created man in his own image. And uh, when man steals a life, he is uh, taking a, 
He is taking over God's role. He is desecrating the, the image of God, which is still residual, even in fallen man. And he's acting in a sovereign way over life, which he has no business doing, and he needs to pay with his own life. Even Jesus said that to Peter. Peter, put away your sword. You live by the sword. You'll die by it. What he meant by that was you take a life, and they have every right to take your life. Jesus advocated capital punishment. So there's an agenda politically that I would prefer... And so from that standpoint, as a citizen who would like to have a, a sort of modicum of morality in the society, would like to see uh, uh, the, the well-being of people uh, elevated by making them productive people instead of putting them on the dole, uh, I, would, I would like to see free enterprise because I think that's the way God designed men with the capability to carve out a niche in society that can be productive and meaningful. But all of that is purely... Uh, purely a social order, purely a cultural morality perspective, and in the end has nothing to do with Christianity. And I'll give you a great illustration of that. Um, a very special person to me is General Douglas MacArthur, for obvious reasons. Um, he was the brother of my... Um, his father, his, his grandfather, i got to get this right, his grandfather was the brother of my great-grandfather. So that makes me some kind of shirt-tail relative of General Douglas MacArthur, okay? He was a genius. He graduated with the highest uh, uh, academic uh, record of anybody in the history of West Point until more recent times. Uh, when the Second World War was over, of course, he was a hero in Asia. General Douglas MacArthur personally wrote the reconstructed government of the nation of Japan. He wrote it. He literally wrote the reconstruction for the entire nation of Japan. Now, if you asked MacArthur if he was a Christian, he would say he was. Certainly he had Christian values and Christian standards as his, as his belief system. And depending on what revisionist historian you read, you, you can come to the conclusion of whether he lived it out. I'm not saying he did necessarily. But here is a man then who wrote a constitution for a whole nation. The nation of Japan then has reflected in its constitution something of Christian thinking and Christian values in the society. Furthermore, the nation of Japan over the last 50 years has had no less than 250 to 300 mission boards. 250 to 300 mission boards operating in Japan with an evangelistic emphasis to reach people for Christ. So they had a form of government that was um, influenced by Christianity. Tremendous, aggressive activity of Christian missions in Japan. Furthermore, Japan is a very cohesive nation from a family standpoint. Tremendous family values and tremendous work ethic. It would be hard to find any country in the world that could even come close to the work ethic of Japan. You don't, you don't see Japan as a welfare society by any stretch of the imagination. And in many ways, all of the things that we might like to achieve uh, in our own country existed in Japan Japan today is almost totally pagan. There is a small, tiny group of Christians. On the other hand, in the, in the country of China, there are somewhere between 50 million and 150 million Christians, and the church has developed completely under the tyranny of communism. You cannot relate what happens in a country socially to the advance of the kingdom of God. That's all bound up in the sovereign purposes of, an, of the eternal counsel of God himself. So, all of this uh, kind of massive effort to, you know, to get involved in the social order, and, and I, I'll tell you very honestly, to spend $22 million to elect some guy to the Senate of the United States is an obscenity. 
If you think by doing that, you're going to gain a Christian agenda. These guys who, who are Christians, I'm glad they're there. I thank the Lord for putting Christians in high places. That doesn't bother me. That's wonderful because they need to influence the other people who are there. But think about taking $22 million and what you could do with it around the world for the kingdom of God. Well, that gets the point across, I hope. I think what you have to do is do what you need to do as a citizen. Vote when you need to vote. Vote for people who hold the, uh, to the things that are right and true and honest and good. And, and if you know a solid, sound Christian, vote him in so he'll have influence in high places like that. But the thing you need to do, according to Scripture, is to pray for the president. Don't get negative on him. That's what our agenda should be. We, we want to vote. We want to do whatever we do as citizens to put righteousness in its proper place in our society. We want to pray for our leaders. We don't want to get down on those leaders. But at the same time, we want to realize that whatever happens in the United States of America on a political front has nothing to do with the eternal kingdom, which is all bound up in the purposes of God from eternity past. Okay? All right. Now it's your turn. If you have any questions, we'll fire away. Well, um, it's just a question I've had going for a couple of years now, and the mic was sovereignly placed right in front of me, so <laughs> I thought I'd have to ask it. Um, could you tell us just what your view is biblically uh, the Sabbath and the Lord's Day? I know I've discussed it with a lot of students, and uh, I think it's something that we all need to think through since it's one out of... I mean, if, if we're supposed to be keeping it, that's, um, that's a large percentage of our life. If, and just maybe sure. how you view that. He's asking uh, what my view of the Sabbath would be. Well, just give you a couple of uh, basic responses. Number one, remember to keep the Sabbath as one of the Ten Commandments. It is the only one of the Ten Commandments not repeated in the New Testament. And I think that's significant. Um... It is the only one of the, the commandments that, uh, that cannot be defined as purely moral, in, in that you could keep the Sabbath and be a wretched person. I mean, it, it could be purely external. For example, when Jesus was talking to the uh, Jews in the Sermon on the Mount, and he, he referred to a number of the Ten Commandments, he didn't talk about that one. It is, there is no place in the New Testament where it's repeated. Then you have two passages of Scripture that are very essential to understanding our view of the Sabbath. Well, actually three. The first one would be in Acts 10. Because in Acts 10, you have Peter being told, he sees a vision of a sheet and there's unclean and clean animals. And, and the Lord says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, look, I can't, I'm kosher. And the Lord says, don't you dare call unclean what God has cleansed. And what you have there is the Lord, by means of a vision, announcing to Peter that the ceremonial law is over. There are no more clean and unclean animals. There is no more external ceremonial law. Okay? That's a very important note there. You follow that up with another passage of Scripture that is very important, and that is in Colossians. And, uh, in fact, I can think of even a fourth one, but in Colossians... With regard to the, to the Sabbath, it couldn't be more explicit because it says in uh, Colossians chapter 2, uh, I'm just trying to find the exact verse, verse 16, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Because a Sabbath day, verse 17, is a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So that the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday, was merely a shadow and not a substance. And once the substance comes, the shadow is not at all the main thing. It fades. It's gone. It's only 
secondary. The substance is Christ. So don't let anybody judge you about a Sabbath day. Now, that cannot be more explicit. What was happening in the, in the Colossian assembly was Jews were coming in and trying to impose Sabbath law on the church. Well, the church didn't keep Sabbath law. What day did they meet? First day of the week. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They met the first day of the week. That was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So he says, don't let anybody bind you to Sabbath law. Then in Romans chapter 14, this very straightforward statement in verse 5, one man regards one day above another. That is one man, he's talking about Sabbatarians, one man would hold to the Sabbath and put it above, you know, say it's more important than Monday or whatever. Another regards every day alike. That is, he sees no distinction in the Sabbath. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, if he, if he wants to keep the Sabbath, he observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, that is, follows dietary laws, does so for the Lord. He gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he doesn't eat and gives thanks to God as well. So the point is, some people keep the Sabbath, some don't. Some keep the ceremonial law, some don't. He's acknowledging there's still some Jewish believers around who are doing that. Let them do it. They don't have to do it. If he regards the day, let him, let him keep the day. Why? Because he's really thinking he's honoring God. So why interrupt that? It's not binding. It's optional. And then one other text of Scripture, and I won't go into it because it would get a prolonged thing. But in, in the book of Hebrews, repeatedly in Hebrews, it says we've entered into rest. And the Sabbath was a picture of salvation rest, which... We have entered into in Christ, and therefore every day becomes the same because we are in a position of rest in Christ all the time. Now, having said all of that, I think it's very clear in the New Testament that we're not bound to the Sabbath. But let me, let me transcend that a little bit and say this. At the same time, I believe that the, the absence of the Sabbath should not diminish our interest in worship. If anything, what it says is that it's not just one day a week we worship, it's what? It's every day. And I think what was a, a one-day focus becomes the focus of life. And John 4 says God desires true worshipers who worship Him in the Spirit and, and in, in the Spirit and in truth. And I, I think personally that every single day now becomes a day that is holy unto the Lord. And whatever we do, whether we work or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Whether we eat or we drink, we do it all to the glory of God. Everybody who goes to work every day, Paul says in Colossians uh, uh, chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 5 when you, uh, and chapter 6, when you go to work and you serve your boss and you serve your employer, whatever work you do, you do it as unto the Lord, right? Everything in life becomes an act of worship. Every class you go to, every paper you write, every quiz you take, every exam, every relationship, every attitude in the dorm, everything you do in an athletic field, in the music department, at your job, whatever it is, all of it is an act of worship to God because all of life becomes a Sabbath. Having said that, I would just add that for me, I thank the Lord that I am able to take one day a week nonetheless and set it completely apart to focus on the Lord. That is why when, when we first started talking about what we wanted to set as a standard for you students, that we, we felt it was important that you be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. So that a very concentrated time of corporate worship for you didn't become just a quick hour, zap in, zap out, and get on with your life. 
get on with your sort of sanctified paganism. But that there be a day which was bracketed by worship, which tends to, to cast itself, you know, in, in a full day's experience of being in the Word and with God's people and in ministry. I, that, people say to me all the time, you know, you preach twice on Sunday, you've done that for 26 years, most churches drop their Sunday night service. Why do you keep doing that? Because that is precious to me, if for nothing else, than to be in the presence of the saints worshiping the Lord at both ends of that day, because it sets that day apart in a very special way. That's the spirit that I think is contained in the Sabbath without having to be confined to the law of the Sabbath, which is unnecessarily confining because we can worship the Lord every day. Does that help? Okay. I was, uh, <clears throat> I guess, wondering about the question you just mentioned, sanctified paganism. And so very early on in my salvation, my pastor had put to me the concept of being fruit inspectors as it relates to discipling and being discipled and things like that. And I was just trying to, I'm working with a youth group, and so trying to distinguish the line between uh, judging fruit and judging or like inspecting fruit and judging one's actions and where we're right and where we're wrong as far as how to minister to people in evangelism or in discipleship. Uh, gosh, I hope I know what you're kind of driving at. What you're trying to do is, is be helpful but without being condemning. And where's that fine line? Yeah. Uh, look, I, let, let's get one thing clear. We need to deal with the text of Scripture. First of all, where it says judge not lest you be judged because that's what everybody gets kind of thrown in their face if they try to confront sin. Well, judge not lest you be judged. That is not talking about evaluating someone's life. That's, that's talking about sitting in the role of the judge and the condemner. That's the same as what God says when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. What that is saying is that don't do what the Roman Catholic Church did in the Inquisition and take the person that you think has violated the church law and burn him at the stake or chop his head off. It's, it's more the idea that that God doesn't give us the right to be the executioner. I mean, the church can't go to a guy and say, look, you've sinned, so we're putting you in stocks. That's what they did in Massachusetts, right? The church can't go to somebody and say, you know, you've committed adultery, so we're going to ram, uh, we're going to ram bamboo up your fingernails. Uh, or, or we're going to put uh, A on your head like Nathaniel Hawthorne, right? And you're going to wear an adulterous A the rest of your life. We, we can't... We can't take the vengeance that belongs to God. We can't take over the role of chastening. In that sense, we can't judge. But we are called upon to exhort, rebuke, confront, and all of that. And to be honest, the only environment in which that can happen is an environment where, um, where we have that kind of knowledge of, of that kind of behavior. You don't want to be a suspicious person. I mean, you want to be, you want to love, you know, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love um, doesn't look for the worst. It always seeks to find the best. So you want to be positive and, and you, you want to be supportive of people. But when it becomes apparent to you in, in working with someone that there is obviously something in their life that is not right, then I think we are obligated to confront that in love. You that are spiritual, restore such a one in love when a brother is overtaken in a fault, right? Galatians 6. And you've got to look at your own life and remember that you should thank the Lord that it's not you because you, you're subject to being tempted in the same way. So you do it out of compassion, you do it out of love, but you do it. And that's the heart and soul of spiritual obligation and accountability. And it really needs to be there. I remember we, a few years ago we had a kid who came here from Detroit, Michigan to play on a basketball team. 
And I had met him in his home back there when I was involved in a conference somewhere and talked to his parents and, and all of this. And uh, he came here. And, and about two months after school had begun, he came to me one day and said, I'm leaving. I said, why? He said, I can't stand so many people concerned about my spiritual life. And he was gone. Um, that was a very encouraging thing to me. It was discouraging that he didn't want that scrutiny of his life. And living in the dorm, it was a little hard to, to avoid. But I think that's part and parcel of, of our Christian experience, that we are called by the Lord to confront those things. Uh, and I'll tell you something. Um, I get just as concerned uh, about, uh, about apathy or indifference or spiritual laziness as I do some overt sin. Because I think that's the path to overt sin. Ultimately. You take a person who's indifferent to the things of God to one degree or another, indifferent to the Word, indifferent to prayer, indifferent to the assembling of the saints for worship, doesn't have that hungry heart for the Word of God. Um, that kind of person entering into apathy is going to, is going to become spiritually weak, weaker, weaker, and then they become very vulnerable. So the, the, I guess the point I'm making is that at some point in time when you begin to see the spiritual weakness, don't wait for the total crash. I think we need to be encouraging folks on the front end of those things so that they don't get to the back end where the real disasters can happen. But that's what ministry is. And uh, if you go into ministry, that's really what you, you, you're going to go into. Um, and I mean, all of us have to do that. I mean, even in my situation where you'd think I might because our church is big and the school's big and there's so many people, I'm, I'm removed from that. I spend a tremendous amount of time in my life confronting people about their sin. I did that just the other day. In a very volatile situation. In fact, I did it twice last week. That's just life for me. But it's crucial to do that. Not because um, I'm the judge, but because I'm the brother who cares and I'm the shepherd who, who loves the sheep. And that's the approach. Okay? All right, who's next? Um, I'd be interested to hear your view on the uh, age of accountability. On the age of accountability. Well, just so everybody understands, the age of accountability supposedly is a term that grew up uh, to define a time when a child becomes responsible for their acceptance or rejection of Christ. In other words, we ask the question, and it's a fair question, um, about when a person can become a Christian. This opens up a very interesting discussion. Let me, let me give it to you in a, in a broad sweep. One, salvation, and this may shake some of you a little bit, salvation is an adult decision. Did you get that? There's no illustration in the Bible anywhere, absolutely anywhere, of, of a child coming to Christ. There's an illustration of Jesus picking up little ones and blessing them, but there's no indication. You say, what about, uh, what about uh, the Philippian jailer and his household? Well, his household uh, could be everybody from his wife and his adult children to his servants and his workers and whatever. It doesn't necessarily embrace little children, so that's really a moot point. What about Cornelius and his household? Same thing. The household simply meant everybody associated with the enterprise there and does not necessarily include children. There's nothing in the scripture that talks about children coming to Christ. You say, well, I, I prayed a prayer when I was five. Good. There's no, there's no question that you prayed that prayer. That's wonderful. The only question is, were you saved? You say, well, I think I was saved. Well, you may think you were saved, but how do you know you were saved? Because if you have not, at the age of five, I'll give it to you in an illustration. I went into a, to a school one time when I was very young in the ministry, and I presented the gospel to the kindergarten and the first grade class in a public school with about 60 kids. 
And I told the story of Jesus and I told it with pathos and I told him how he died and how he came out of the grave and, and uh, went through the whole deal. And I asked how many of them would like to have this Jesus come and forgive their sins and take them to heaven. And every hand in the place went up. It's no decision. If they like me, they'll, they'll respond. If they like Jesus, they'll respond. But they're not embattled over the issue of repentance. Dr. Criswell is right when through the years he has called those prayers that the children pray steps toward God. And every parent encourages every one of those. When my little children would say to me, Daddy, I, I want to ask Jesus into my heart. I, I'd say, wonderful, let's pray. That's just a step in the right direction, just affirming and affirming and affirming. But there is some point in the development of a child when that child reaches an age where they become accountable for coming to Christ or accountable for rejecting Christ. And the question is, at what age is that? And I can't answer that except to give you a, a model uh, and say this, that in the, in the Old Testament, Jewish children reached adulthood at what age? Twelve. And they were bar mitzvah. What does that mean? It means a son of the law. In other words, they became accountable for the maintenance of God's law at that age. And, and even Jesus conformed to that. Did he not? When he was twelve years old, he went into the temple and dialogued with the leaders about the word of God, which indicated that he knew what was going on. And it is at that point that the Bible says, from there he grew in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God, and in favor with man. So I would tend to think that somewhere around those years, and it would be different for every child. Different for every child. Now, let me tell you why. You say, well, what happens to the babies who die before they reach that age? What happens to the children who die before they reach that age? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't say anything specifically about that. But it gives some indirect hints. One is in the Old Testament with regard to David. David committed sin with Bathsheba. As you know, he got her pregnant, she had a baby, and then God started a sequence of punishment in the life of David that was horrific, really. Tragic punishment. It cost him the life of his own son, Absalom. The little baby that was born of that union died on the spot. Do you remember what David said? When the baby that, uh, he, that he gave, really, to Bathsheba died, he said this, He cannot come to me, the little one, but I shall go to him. That's quite a statement of confidence. Where did he think that little one was? Did David know where he was going? Sure, he knew where he was going. He was going into the presence of God when he died. After all, he was a man after God's own heart, even though not a perfect man. And I think he expresses the confidence that that little one was in the presence of God. It wasn't a question of election. Or David couldn't have said that because election is a secret decree. And election is confirmed only by faith. And the only way the elect can be known as the elect is by faith, and that little baby couldn't exercise faith. So it doesn't fit into, into, the, into the plan of election. It doesn't fit into the plan of faith. Furthermore, when you come to the great white throne judgment, which we're discussing on Sunday nights at Grace now, it says explicitly twice that when all the ungodly dead of all the ages come before the throne of God and the whole universe is uncreated, and all of humanity that re rejected the Lord comes before God. Everybody from, from creation to the very end, when they'll all be raised and brought to the great white throne, it says twice, they will be judged according to their deeds. Over 50 times in the scripture, it says that they will be judged according to their deeds, according to their deeds, according to their deeds. It, the, the indictment that comes against them at the final tribunal of God is the record of their iniquities. And again, remind yourself that a child that dies has no record of iniquities. A stillborn infant, 
A baby that dies at nine weeks after its birth or three months or a year? Where is the record of willful iniquity? And even in a little child whose iniquity to one degree or another is regulated by the parents or not regulated. Furthermore, Jesus said, you will go where I, where I will not be. You will die in your sins. And he says, uh, where I go, you can't come. And, and why, John 7? Because you believe not on me. It is the failure to believe on Christ. It is the record of iniquity that condemns people. And so we conclude then that a child doesn't become culpable, doesn't become endangered in terms of eternal judgment until they can consciously, willfully reject Christ and until they have compiled a record of iniquities. At some point, they become capable of that. And it varies, I think, in each case. It might be younger for some, it might be older for some. And what about someone who is um, intellectually incapacitated? Someone who is severely retarded, they may never reach at that age of accountability. It's my conviction that the, um, that the best perspective to take on those who die before the age of accountability is that they all go to heaven. That God simply sweeps them up and redeems them in His grace. As David was confident, he took that little one to heaven because he had died before the age of accountability. And Jesus, you remember, gathered the little children into his arms, as it tells us in the Gospels. And the disciples said, you know, why are you letting those kids bug you? And he says to them, wait a minute. Permit the little children to come unto me and don't forbid them because of such is the kingdom of heaven. And I think Jesus was again affirming that. I think God's grace is manifested toward those little ones who die prior to the age of accountability. And I would even go a step further and say, isn't it interesting that the more pagan a nation is, generally the higher the mortality rate. So that what appears to be a tragedy may in the end be the mercy of God. As he rests, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Because a Sabbath day, verse 17, is a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So that the Sabbath day, the seventh day, Saturday, was merely a shadow and not a substance. And once the substance comes, the shadow is not at all the main thing. It fades. It's gone. It's only... Secondary, The substance is Christ. So don't let anybody judge you about a Sabbath day. Now, that cannot be more explicit. What was happening in the, in the Colossian assembly was Jews were coming in and trying to impose Sabbath law on the church. Well, the church didn't keep Sabbath law. What day did they meet? First day of the week. They didn't keep the Sabbath. They met the first day of the week. That was the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. So he says, don't let anybody bind you to Sabbath law. Then in Romans chapter 14, this very straightforward statement in verse 5, one man regards one day above another. That is one man, he's talking about Sabbatarians, one man would hold to the Sabbath and put it above, you know, say it's more important than Monday or whatever. Another regards every day alike. That is, he sees no distinction in the Sabbath. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, if he, if he wants to keep the Sabbath, he observes it for the Lord. And he who eats, that is, follows dietary laws, does so for the Lord. He gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he doesn't eat and gives thanks to God as well. So the point is, some people keep the Sabbath, some don't. Some keep the ceremonial law, some don't. He's not acknowledging there's still some Jewish believers around who are doing that. Let them do it. They don't have to do it. 
If he regards the day, let him, let him keep the day. Why? Because he's really thinking he's honoring God. So why interrupt that? It's not binding. It's optional. And then one other text of Scripture, and I won't go into it because it would get a prolonged thing. But in, in the book of Hebrews, repeatedly in Hebrews, it says we've entered into rest. And the Sabbath was a picture of salvation rest, which we have entered into in Christ. And therefore, every day becomes the same because we are in a position of rest in Christ all the time. Now, having said all of that, I think it's very clear in the New Testament that we're not bound to the Sabbath. But let me, let me transcend that a little bit and say this. At the same time, I believe that the, the absence of the Sabbath should not diminish our interest in worship. If anything, what it says is that it's not just one day a week we worship, it's what? It's every day. And I think what was a, a one-day focus becomes the focus of life. And John 4 says God desires true worshipers who worship Him in the Spirit and, and in, in the Spirit and in truth. And I, I think personally that every single day now becomes a day that is holy unto the Lord. And whatever we do, whether we work or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. Whether we eat or we drink, we do it all to the glory of God. Everybody who goes to work every day, Paul says in Colossians uh, uh, chapter 3 and in Ephesians chapter 5 when you, or, and chapter 6, when you go to work and you serve your boss and you serve your employer, whatever work you do, you do it as unto the Lord, right? Everything in life becomes an act of worship. Every class you go to, every paper you write, every quiz you take, every exam, every relationship, every attitude in the dorm, everything you do in an athletic field, in the music department, at your job, whatever it is, all of it is an act of worship to God because all of life becomes a Sabbath. Having said that, I would just add that for me, I thank the Lord that I am able to take one day a week nonetheless and set it completely apart to focus on the Lord. That is why when, when we first started talking about what we wanted to set as a standard for you students, that we, we felt it was important that you be in church on Sunday morning and Sunday night. So that a very concentrated time of corporate worship for you didn't become just a quick hour. Zap in, zap out, and get on with your life. Get on with your sort of sanctified paganism. But that there be a day which was bracketed by worship, which tends to, to cast itself, you know, in, in a full day's experience of being in the Word and with God's people and in ministry. I, that people say to me all the time, you know, you preach twice on Sunday, you've done that for 26 years, most churches drop their Sunday night service, why do you keep doing that? Because that is precious to me, if for nothing else, than to be in the presence of the saints worshiping the Lord at both ends of that day, because it sets that day apart in a very special way. That's the spirit that I think is contained in the Sabbath without having to be confined to the law of the Sabbath, which is unnecessarily confining, because we can worship the Lord every day. Does that help? Okay. I was, uh, <clears throat> I guess, wondering about the question you just mentioned, sanctified paganism. And so very early on in my salvation, my pastor had put to me the concept of being fruit inspectors as it relates to discipling and being discipled and things like that. And I was just trying to, I'm working with a youth group, and so trying to distinguish the line between uh, judging fruit and judging or like inspecting fruit and judging one's actions and where we're right and where we're wrong as far as how to minister to people in evangelism or in discipleship. Uh, gosh, I hope I know what you're kind of driving at. 
what you're trying to do is is be helpful but without being condemning and where's that fine line yeah uh, look I, let, let's get one thing clear we need to deal with the text of scripture first of all where it says judge not lest you be judged because that's what everybody gets kind of thrown in their face if they try to confront sin well judge not lest you be judged that is not talking about evaluating someone's life that's that's talking about sitting in the role of the judge and the condemner that's the same as what God says when he says vengeance is mine I will repay what that is saying is that don't do what the Roman Catholic Church did in the Inquisition and take the person that you think has violated the church law and burn him at the stake or chop his head off it's, it's more the idea that that God doesn't give us the right to be the executioner I mean the church can't go to a guy and say look you've sinned so we're putting you in stocks that's what they did in Massachusetts right the church can't go to somebody and say you know you've committed adultery so we're gonna ram uh, we're gonna ram bamboo up your fingernails uh, or, or we're gonna put uh, a on your head like Nathaniel Hawthorne right and you're gonna wear an adulterous a the rest of your life we, we can't we can't take the vengeance that belongs to God. We can't take over the role of chastening. In that sense, we can't judge. But we are called upon to exhort, rebuke, confront, and all of that. And to be honest, the only environment in which that can happen is an environment where, um, where we have that kind of knowledge of, of that kind of behavior. You don't want to be a suspicious person. I mean, you want to be, you want to love, you know, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love um, doesn't look for the worst. It always seeks to find the best. So you want to be positive and, and you, you want to be supportive of people. But when it becomes apparent to you in, in working with someone that there is obviously something in their life that is not right, then I think we are obligated to confront that in love. You that are spiritual, restore such a one in love when a brother is overtaken in a fault, right? Galatians 6. And you've got to look at your own life and remember that you should thank the Lord that it's not you because you, you're subject to being tempted in the same way. So you do it out of compassion, you do it out of love, but you do it. And that's the heart and soul of spiritual obligation and accountability. And it really needs to be there. I remember we, a few years ago we had a kid who came here from Detroit, Michigan to play on a basketball team. And I had met him in his home back there when I was involved in a conference somewhere and talked to his parents and... And all of this. And uh, he came here. And about two months after school had begun, he came to me one day and said, I'm leaving. And I said, why? He said, I can't stand so many people concerned about my spiritual life. And he was gone. Um, that was a very encouraging thing to me. It was discouraging that he didn't want that scrutiny of his life. And living in the dorm, it was a little hard to, to avoid. But I think that's part and parcel of, of our Christian experience. That we are called by the Lord to confront those things. Uh, and I'll tell you something. Um, I get just as concerned uh, about, about apathy or indifference or spiritual laziness as I do some overt sin. Because I think that's the path to overt sin. Ultimately. To continue this message, please turn to side two.